Legally Blonde, Suits, My Cousin Vinny. All badass lawyers, all different. Which begs the question, what type of lawyer do you want to be? Don't waste another second thinking, ugh, I don't even know what types of lawyers there are. Trust us, we've been there. Let's put a stop to that once and for all. Go take the 90-second quiz from new lawyer now what coach Angela Vorpal to give yourself a clear picture of the best fit type law for you. Go to www.whattypeoflawyerquiz.com and take the quiz today. Once you've taken the quiz, send us a DM on Instagram to let us know what type of lawyer you got. We can't wait to hear. If you're a future lady lawyer, there's an exciting step I'm guessing you haven't taken yet. What is it? Figuring out the type of badass lady lawyer you should be. How do you do that? Well, let us tell you. A longtime friend of the podcast and kick-ass new lawyer coach, Angela Borpal, has put together a free What Type of Lawyer Should I Be quiz. This is a 90-second quiz designed to reveal the type of law that will best fit your interests, career goals, and lifestyle. Can I get a yes, please? So don't wait another second. Go to whattypeoflawyerquiz.com to take the first step towards your dream future lawyering life. And then make sure and send us a DM on Instagram to let us know what type of lawyer you got. We can't wait to nerd out over it with you. Hi guys, welcome back to the Ladies Who Law podcast. I'm Sam. And I'm Haley. And this week we have a very special guest, Elise Holtzman. Haley, can you tell us a little bit about her? Yeah. So Elise is also a podcast host, but she owns her own business called The Lawyer's Edge. And the podcast is The Lawyer's Edge podcast. She's a former lawyer, in my opinion, though, still lawyer who helps transform lawyers into rainmakers and leaders. So this woman is just impeccable, great, stunning with her work, and we had to talk to her. All right, let's dive in. help me welcome our guest, Miss Elise Holtzman. Hi, Elise. We are so happy to have you on the podcast. How are you? I'm doing great, Haley. Thanks so much for having me. So Elise, tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. I am a former practicing lawyer. I practiced law in the area of commercial real estate transactions in two big New York City law firms. And for the past 15 years, I have had a company called The Lawyer's Edge. And what we do at The Lawyer's Edge is training, coaching, and consulting exclusively for lawyers and law firms, primarily around the things that they didn't bother teaching us in law school, things like business development, leadership skills, communication skills, those sorts of things. So when law firms are looking to grow 
They want to retain their top talent. They want to elevate the next generation of leaders. They come to us for the educational components and the coaching that will help them shortcut the growth and development of their people. Amazing. So Elise, tell us where you went to law school. I went to law school at Columbia University in New York City. Okay, very cool. And what made you decide to become a lawyer? That's a little bit of a funny story. I was planning to go to medical school. And I came from a family where education was prized above many other things. And Mm -hmm. I was pushed pretty hard. I did well in school. So when I went to college, I said, I'm going to be a doctor. And of course, everyone in my family jumped on the bandwagon with that. I was also the oldest child in my generation. So I was the first one to be doing everything, you know, the the blessed first grandchild, that kind of thing. And so I, for three plus years in college, I took all of the things that you need to do to go to medical school. And I really knocked myself out. I mean, bio, biochemistry, chemistry, physics, calculus, all of that stuff. And while that was going on, I majored in psychology because I loved it. And I thought it was easy, at least it was for me. And it was kind of a relief from all of those hard sciences. So apparently, you know, I'm a little slow on the uptake. I finally realized that doing that, um, pursuing something where I had to knock myself out to get good grades, as opposed to doing something where it came easily to me and I enjoyed it was probably not the best fit. So I started looking around. I I was very precocious and started doing things like informational interviews to try to figure out what I was going to be when I grew up. And I came to the conclusion that going to law school was probably going to be the best fit for me. And it turned out that it was. And so I really went because I liked the idea of being able to use my talents for speaking and writing and reasoning. I also liked the idea that I could go to law school and do it in three years and come out and be an actual lawyer as opposed to going to medical school and then doing internships and residencies for the rest of my natural life before I could actually call myself a full-fledged physician. So I can't say that it was some brilliant idea that I had about being a lawyer, um, but it did turn out to be a great fit. So once you got to law school, like, what was that experience like? Like, did you just fall into the swing of things and you were like, I got this? Or, you know, did you have any struggles? I think... All of us can probably agree that being a 1L is not the best thing that ever happens to a person. I think I was very overwhelmed. I think I was overwhelmed by two things. One was I was overwhelmed by New York City. I was born in New York, but I didn't grow up in New York. And so I came to New York after college. And, you know, with years of my parents telling me how wonderful New York was and came to the conclusion that they could not have been more wrong, which, of course, later in life, you know, I I live in the New York metropolitan area for most of my life now, and I, I do love it. But at the time, it felt very overwhelming. And law school felt overwhelming, too, because there were these wildly brilliant people there. And you know how it is. The reading was overwhelming. They also had us living in these dorms that were gray on gray on gray. The floors were gray. The walls were gray. The hallways were gray. Everything was gray. And they put six adults into a suite with these tiny little rooms and one bathroom and one kitchen. So it, and it was, you know, it was, and they were co-ed and people were from all over the world and all over the country. And so nobody really had much of anything in common. And so it was just a little depressing. Once I got past that, you know, I really grew to love law school. I love the intellectual inquiry. 
And I loved meeting people from all different backgrounds and all different classes. And one of the ways I did that was to be in the um, the Law Review show, R-E-V-U-E. We had a fall cabaret and we had a spring Law Review where we kind of lampooned the profession and the professors and law school and all of that sort of thing. And so that's where I really found my people and my friends. And in fact, I met my husband uh, when we were cast together to sing a love song in the fall cabaret. That's oh my so gosh. cute. I we love, love a law school love story. <laughs> yes. And I had to go back to this dorm situation. Was this forced? Was this something you had to do? They provided housing. So okay. yeah, if you applied for housing, this was somewhere that you had to live. And of course, in New York City, finding something on your own is outrageously expensive. So it was welcome for most people. Mm -hmm. I think what they were trying to do back then, and look, this was a very long time ago. Um, (laughs) You know, I graduated from law school in 1990. So we were going in in 1987. And this was just when people were starting to talk about diversity and really try to pull people together from different backgrounds so that we could all be learning from each other, integrated together and, you know, have this shared law school experience. Yeah. And you could very much see their efforts because every suite, as we call them, you could say, well, you know, there's one from, there's one person from the African-American list and one person from the foreign list. I mean, it was ridiculous, right? It was just, it was forced, as you say. And and so look, I, I think that there was probably value there, but so it wasn't that so much that was the problem was just that here you are, you don't know anybody. And the, the physical plant was so depressing. Yeah. Also the way they did the law school classes back then, and they don't do it this way anymore was you would have a class at like from nine to 10 and then from 11 to 12 and then from one to two. So you would have these one hour breaks in between classes. And I think the idea was that you can do your work for the next class in between these classes. But what, what would happen was you really never got a full block of time to think straight. And so sometimes people would have nowhere to go, but to go back to the dorm, which was right next to the law school. And so you were kind of in and out of this gray situation all the time. And so for me, at least, it just wasn't a great first year. And it would seem to me hard to establish any kind of boundaries from law school or to have a place to go, like you said, to digest this information that is so new and so cryptic at times. You're like, what are we doing here? So I can only imagine how that was difficult, but what a crazy, also cool experience to go through, I I, I feel like. It was definitely crazy. And it's something that you don't forget. Yeah. I met some remarkable people in law school and some of whom I continue to be in touch with. And I am grateful for that. Yeah. I'm also, I also love some of the classes I took. I mean, I really did love, you know, it sounds silly to say it now because it's so, um, it's so trite, but I loved my real property class. And most people I, I would say don't love the real property class, but I did. It never occurred to me that I would become a commercial real estate lawyer, but I did love that class. And yeah. that's what I ultimately went into. So that's kind of funny as well. So as you progressed through law school after 1L, I'm guessing you were able to, were you able to move out of the housing? Okay. So things got a little better in that aspect. Um, so when you're in 3L, like at that point, what kind of internships had you had or like, what were you doing to like figure out what you wanted to do after law school? Great question. I had absolutely no idea what I was going to do with my law degree. 
back then everyone was saying, well, you can do anything with a law degree. And I think there are a lot of people who still say that, although people are have come to the conclusion that you shouldn't just go park yourself in law school for three years if you don't really know what you want to be when you grow up. It's a very expensive proposition. I did manage to get a job after my 1L year at a well-respected law firm in Baltimore. I, As I mentioned, I didn't grow up in New York, so my I was living, my parents were living outside of Baltimore City. Um, there was a law firm that no longer exists that was very well respected. So I was able to be a summer associate there, which was a fabulous experience. It was a terrific place. And I started to get an idea of what it looked like to be a lawyer. I also knew that I had to pay back loans. I had a lot of debt to pay off and my parents were extremely helpful to me, but you know they couldn't do everything. And so I had these loans. And my second summer, I thought, well, I don't really want to stay in New York. Again, I think I was still a little overwhelmed by New York. And I had gone to college in Philadelphia. And I thought, you know what? Philadelphia is a really nice city. It's it's not as crazy. It's still an urban environment, but it's not as kooky as New York is. And so I went and I did uh, a summer associate position at a huge firm in Philadelphia. And I came to the conclusion that while Philadelphia is a fabulous city, it wasn't really a great fit for me because I was young and I was single and my family didn't live there. And it turned out that most of the other summer associates had their families there. They were from the Philadelphia area and people were lovely. They invited me on, you know, to go down the shore, as we like to say in New Jersey with them on the weekends and stuff like that. But they really were spending time with their families. And and so I would occasionally get on the train and go down to Baltimore to see my parents. At that point, I said, okay, this is great. And I did have an offer from the firm. They were lovely, but I decided to, to stay in New York ultimately. Um, and I came back for my 3L year. I was interviewing for you know, general practice firms, because again, I wasn't really sure what I wanted to do. And I really didn't know what the options were. To me, you know, Columbia was, and still is probably a big feeder into big law. And when you're kind of naive, and you don't have lawyers in your family, and there are really not a lot of mentors around, certainly there were no women mentors back then. I just kind of went with the flow, especially knowing that I had these loans to pay off. So my 3L year, I wound up interviewing at the same time, meeting my husband, who was from the New York metropolitan area, and getting a job offer with a big law firm in New York City, they also allowed me to work part-time during my 3L year. So I was able to earn some money while I was working and start to get a sense of what it was going to feel like to be at that firm. We love that. We'd love to make sure and check out the firm, see how it's going to be. If you can do that, that's such a great opportunity. We'll be right back. Hey guys, we want to take a moment to talk about something that has been a game changer for us busy lawyers, Audible. Yes, Audible has been our go-to platform for incredible audiobooks, offering an extensive library of thrillers, nonfiction, autobiographies, and mysteries. And guess what? We've got a special treat for you. Audible is offering a free trial to our listeners, and all you need to do is check the link in the show notes. It's the perfect opportunity to experience the magic of audiobooks without spending a dime. Speaking of thrillers, I know you're currently hooked on Never Lie by Frida McFadden. Samantha, can you tell us a little bit about it? Absolutely. The twists and turns in Never Lie have kept me on the edge of my seat during the workday and even when I'm on my daily walks. 
It's like having a suspenseful companion wherever I go. And for those looking for some financial wisdom, I have been engrossed in My Money, My Way by Kamuku Love. It's packed with practical advice on managing finances, perfect for anyone trying to navigate the complexities of money management. What we love most is the flexibility Audible offers. As lawyers, our schedules can be unpredictable, but with Audible, we can enjoy our favorite books on the go, whether we're stuck in traffic, hitting the gym, or waiting for a court hearing. So if you're ready to embark on a literary journey and discover the joys of audiobooks, click the link in the show notes to start your free trial with Audible. Trust us, you won't want to miss out on this fantastic offer. So once you graduate and you start working, how does that change from like part-time, now you're full-time, I'm assuming, and like how does that life treat you? I have to say that the firm was fabulous. When I graduated, I had no money. I had a lot of debt. They actually allowed me to take a cash advance uh, on my salary so that I could buy clothes, (laughs) professional clothes. And I went to work. And that fall, uh, the market was not doing well at all. And I kind of freaked out because, you know, I was so bright eyed and bushy tailed and earnest back then and wanted to make a good impression. And so in the month of November, as I started, I billed eight hours that month. There was just no work. And I remember going around to the different attorneys every few days in my practice group and asking them for, hey, just wanted to let you know, you know, I'm available if you need anything. And finally, one of the most senior partners said, Elise, calm down. (laughs) Like, we know that there's not a lot of work right now. It's okay, right? Nobody thinks you're being lazy. Um, And then, of course, it went completely in the opposite direction so that a few years later, I was working, I was billing 300 hours a month in a row. And, you know, a a kind of, as you guys know, a normal work month looks more like 160 hours, billing 160 hours a month. So I was billing double that for several months in a row. Um, And so I loved the firm. I loved what I did. I worked with some amazing people. I worked with some kooky people too. Um, You know, you hear all the stories and a lot of them were true. You know, I pulled a couple all nighters and I would get home at one o'clock in the morning and, uh, you know, my husband was still in law school at that point. So I would sometimes get home in the middle of the night and I was the one with money in the bank. So all of our, our bills, he would pay the bills. And back then it was all checks, right? So he would write the checks. He would put them out on our tiny little, you know, folding kitchen table and I would come home and sign them all. And then he would send them, right? Cause somebody had to, somebody had to sign the checks and it was me. <laughs> um, so, you know, it was, it was kind of a crazy life. And then, by the time I was a couple of years in, he was also working. Uh, he did a federal clerkship and then he went to a firm and he's still there. He just celebrated 30 years at the same firm, which is very unusual these days. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, it was a little bit of a bad movie. I mean, it, it, and it got crazier. I did decide to leave that firm because I knew that we're two lawyers trying to make it the 2600 hour year or whatever it was almost killed me. And I decided to go to a different firm. So I went to a different big firm. I did also great work. They were much smaller deals. And so I was able to run a lot of them myself, which was very, very exciting. Even though they weren't my clients, I was given a lot of responsibility to run those deals. And I absolutely loved it. Um, and I worked with some phenomenal associates and, and counsel and partners. So I'm, I'm grateful for all of that. We then went and had a baby. 
Um, the baby, for all I know, is older than you two. I have no idea, but we're not going to talk about that. Um, but when we had the baby, um, you know, it, the whole thing just became untenable, right? right? Because we are two big log wears. Um, we had a daytime nanny. Then we had to get a second shift who could, if we called her by a certain time of day, she could meet the daytime nanny. So then there were all of these times where, you know, we didn't see the baby awake for days in a row. And then the only time we were talking together was to sit down at our dining room table late at night with our paper calendars in front of us trying to figure out, you know, he, he was, he's a litigator. Um, so he was doing more litigation back then and a lot of advising, of advising work now, but, you know, I was doing transactions, he was doing litigation. So which one of us can stay in the morning and which one of us can get home at night. And at some point you just have to look at it and say, you know, this isn't working. And again, I was naive. I didn't have anyone to talk to. There were no female mentors back then. I looked around and I thought, okay, how can I make this work? And there were a couple of women partners but none of them had children and none of them were really interested in having these conversations. So this was long before these conversations were being had. And that's one of the reasons I think I'm so passionate about doing work with women lawyers. I work with men as well, and I love my male clients. But at, over the years, I have gotten more passionate about working um, with women lawyers to help them be successful or, or you know, in whatever way that's meaningful to them. Um, and so you know, there was no such thing as a professional coach back then, right? There were no women's initiatives. There were no women's bar associations. And so, and it wasn't something like I looked around and said, well, I'm missing all of those things. I didn't even know that was a possibility. I just knew that I didn't see anybody who looked like me doing what I wanted to do. I did interview for some in-house jobs. It wasn't really what I wanted to do. And the jobs that were available in real estate at the time, there weren't any that I thought were really terrific. There was one job I interviewed. I think it was many, I think it was Rockefeller Center, if I remember correctly. And the woman who was general counsel was only four years ahead of me or of that division was only four years ahead of me out of the same law school. And I thought, well, I don't want the job they're offering me. I'm going to want her job, <laughs> you know? And so ultimately I said, this whole thing just doesn't work because I didn't have role models. There were no sponsors. There were no mentors. And so I grudgingly left the practice of law. Mm -hmm. And looking back, you know, I hate to say, I hate to say that, right? Because it's like, you know, some people thought, well, you know, you obviously can't hack it. And that really wasn't the case. I was doing really well. I actually, I loved what I did. The firm really appreciated me, um, which was, which was really nice, but it just didn't seem like something that I could continue doing. And so I wound up leaving the practice of law. We moved to New Jersey from New York City. My husband was two years behind me in law school, so he was actually making a little bit less money than I was making. Let's say I was making like 52% of our family income. And so we couldn't stay in Manhattan on one salary. And so we moved to the suburbs and one baby turned into two and two turned into three. And so ultimately I was home with my kids for a long time, which is not something I had set out to do. And that's a mixed bag, right? Because on the one hand, I was a little bit frustrated that I wasn't doing what I had set out to do. And on the other hand, I was and am fully aware that most women don't have the option of staying home full time. I was mm -hmm. fortunate in that I was able to do that from a financial perspective. And so in order to fill my time with something other than mothering, and don't get me wrong, I love my children, but I needed something else to do intellectually, I threw myself into volunteer work. 
I was like a meme almost, right? I was like running every fundraiser <laughs> and, you know, PTA. every school fundraiser. Yeah, you name it. I was running it. And I remember one time my husband looked at me in the morning and said, and you were up until two o'clock in the morning at your computer for this fundraiser. Why again? So at some point, and look, I enjoyed it. Um, and look, there were a lot of, I, I also thought there were a lot of moms who were working who can't do these things and I'm able to do them. So I did them, but I really did run every fundraiser. Like it was an IPO or something. I was a little crazy. I love and that so, so much though. Yeah. I, I, I want to just comment and talk about your story because I feel like it's so important and I appreciate you so much for sharing because we as millennial lawyers stand on the shoulders of women like you who went to law school, went to amazing law schools you know, didn't have mentorship, didn't have other females. And I feel like I've looked around so much lately and there's so many young female associates. And I think it's because, I mean, you, I just thank you. You know, I really want to just say that and, and just make an acknowledgement of that because it's so hearing your story and understanding why, and I hear so many times women say that they left the law, but really you just, in my opinion, put it on pause. I did put it on pause, although it didn't feel like that at the time. Yeah. And when it was time to go back to work, I thought about going back to a law firm. But remember, because of my experience, you know, and there's obviously some some large law firms in New Jersey. Um, and I thought about over the years, I thought about, well, when I go back, you know, maybe I'll go back to one of these firms because all I knew was big law. I mm -hmm. mean, again, very naive, didn't realize that there were so many other ways to practice law in a sophisticated way that yeah. could really work, right? I mean, what I know now doing the work that I've been doing for the last 15 years is that there are most of the lawyers in this country are not in big law firms, obviously, and, and they're doing extremely important work. When it was time to go back, I looked around and I said, I'm never going to let a law firm own me again, right? I'm never going to let them tell me what time I have to be at work and what time I can go home because I had three children and my youngest has special needs. And my husband is working long hours at his firm in New York City and commuting. So I looked for something else. And that's when I found out about executive and leadership coaching. And I thought, oh, here again, we have a combination of everything that I love and everything I think I'm halfway decent at. And so I'm going to give that a shot. Amazing. So what did that like look like? Like, how did you start? You know, was it just like a lot of learning about it first? And, or, you know, did you, did you just jump in or how, how did it, how did it start? Great question. So I, when my kids went to school, I would go to Barnes and Noble and bookstores and hang out in the, you know, what am I going to be when I grow up department, <laughs> the self-help department and all of that stuff. And I wound up reading a book and I found out about coaching in the book. I think I, I thought, I knew there was something called life coaching, but it just didn't sound like something that would be a good fit for me. I didn't realize at the time, and this is going back, you know, 16 years ago, let's say, that there was such a thing as executive coaching or leadership coaching, something that would be considered more of a business kind of a position. And so when I found out about it, and I found out that there were coach training programs, um, I started looking into, you know, being a lawyer and being somewhat uh, let's call it anal about how you're going to do your career. I started looking into it and discovered that there's an organization called the International Coaching Federation or the ICF that is the self-regulating body of the coaching profession. Mm -hmm. And because we're not a licensed profession, obviously like therapists or lawyers. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to do this thing, right, because I am a structured person, I am a lawyer, I'm going to do it right. And so I'm going to go through a program that's been accredited by the ICF as 
being a good program and teaching what they think you should learn. And so I did join a full year certificate program in uh, coaching. And so it was a combination of in-person three, like three day weekends, very intense three day weekends. I think there were four of those. And then in between, we had these enormous conference calls because of course, back then we weren't using Zoom or video calls or anything like that. So we'd have these enormous conference calls. And you also had the opportunity to coach other students and for them to coach you. You had the experience of being a coach and you had the experience of being a client. And there really is something to learn about coaching. What it means though, is that there are coaches who just decide to hang out a shingle one day and say they're a coach because they think they're good at doing something. And so while some of those folks can be fabulous, I am a big believer in having the education. If you're going to do something professionally, to have the education behind it. And when you are a member of the International Coach Federation, there are credentials that you can earn. There's continuing coach education that you're supposed to take, like we take CLE, that sort of thing. So I took the program first and then thought, great, I'm going to go hang out my own shingle and have my own business. I had no idea what I was doing. I had never run a business before. I didn't grow up in an entrepreneurial family. So, you know, if somebody had a pulse and they wanted to be coached, I coached them. And I, I didn't also know that I wanted to work with lawyers right up front. But as with anything, it's important, I believe, to have a niche of some kind, right? To have something where you can say, I bathe in this. This is what I do. This I understand all the challenges of this particular audience. And so over time, I decided to very early on, I would say um, within the first year or so, I decided to focus my entire practice on lawyers and law firms. Um, and that's been that's been great. But again, I had no idea. I didn't know how to run a business. I didn't know how to get clients. And it's interesting to me looking back because the way I got I, a lot of the work we do is is helping lawyers understand how to develop relationships, how to raise their profile in the legal and business communities, how to bring in business and keep clients um, happy and coming back. I didn't know any of that when I first got started. And so what happened was in order to grow my own business purely selfishly, I started learning everything I could. So I was reading every marketing book, listening to every recording I could get my hands on, going to all kinds of conferences and programs. And what happened was I noticed without really intending to do it, that I was helping my clients grow their practices. And one day the light bulb went on and I thought, oh, this is really fun and it's really working. So I'm going to do more of this. And that's really how I chose the direction to go in. That's so cool. So you decided to focus on coaching lawyers and law firms. What does that look like now? There are certain goals and challenges that private practice lawyers typically have and that their law firms have. Some of those include growing the practice, right? Continuing to have the right kinds of clients come in, have them stay, have them be happy, be able to serve them effectively, being able to attract the right talent to your law firm, and also being able to retain that talent. Because, you know, we mentioned before that my husband's been at his firm for 30 years. That is very unusual. And you know that. So there are some people who have done that. But in, in today's world, more often than not, people are moving around significantly more frequently. And for law firms, that's extremely expensive. And it also impacts the culture right? Because law firms culture is really dependent on who are the people that are next to you every day? Who are the people that you're working with? What kinds of values do you have? How do you want people to feel at work every day? How do you want your clients to feel? And so for law firms, losing their top talent can be very disruptive. First of all, it's very expensive 
to have to hire and retrain other people and bring them up to speed. Um, and it really can cause these cultural problems where people don't feel as happy coming to work every day because they feel like it's a revolving door. Those are some of the kinds of challenges and goals that law firms have. Of course, growing their practices is a big one because law firms are a for-profit business. And I think the biggest challenge is when it comes to that, that law school doesn't typically talk about those things. And I also think the the snootier the law school, the less likely they are to talk about it because they say things like, well, you know, we're not a trade school. Well, you kind of are, right? Yeah. Like I think, I think law, law school could get past that a little bit. It's not just this sort of country club profession where everybody's mm-hmm. so genteel to each other and all of that. You're running for-profit businesses. And so I think that educating lawyers and keeping them on and teaching them both business development, but also management and leadership skills is really important because when you're running a business, it's not just about bringing in the money. It's also about properly managing the people that you have there and leading your firm into an uncertain future. Things change. And who do you have at the helm of the firm that's making the decisions, right? Is it all people from the same generation and the same gender? Is it people from different backgrounds who bring different ideas to the table and different perspectives to the table? And so there's a lot that goes on inside law firms that I never would have even thought about. It didn't even occur to me. And listen, forget as a law student, as an associate, I didn't have, you know, there was no open door for me to see what was going on in the background. And so what I would say, not that you asked, I'm just giving unsolicited advice. No, we want to give it. Which you may not want. But, um, you know, I think it's really important for, for lawyers who are going into private practice or in private practice to, yes, of course, learn how to be a great lawyer, bill the hours and all of that sort of thing, but also to understand what it really looks like to run a law firm, to have that entrepreneurial mindset, to understand the business of law. And sometimes law firms are not that great about teaching associates about those things. They tend to hide the ball. It's like, we're not going to share all of that stuff with our associates. And in some ways it's understandable because they're the business owners. And in other ways, I'm a big believer that if you want these people to grow into leaders of your firm, you can't spring this information on them when either they want to become partner or they've already made partner. We'll be right back. Have you ever wondered what the band ACDC has to do with the missing town of Doveland, Wisconsin? Or who gets to decide what music plays at the end of the world? Or whether or not the largest unsolved art heist in history was actually a cover for a different crime? Maybe you haven't wondered about these things, but that's okay. On 31, we dive into strange, true, but often lesser-known stories and the interesting theories that surround them. From space to sports, lost media to internet lore, 31 has something for everyone. Find 31 on your favorite podcast platform and dive into the why behind the weird with me, Quinn Lovecraft. 31, the why behind the weird. Absolutely. I mean, no one in law school teaches you how to run a business. It's all about reading cases and, you know, (laughs) I love how you said this new year, the law school, the country club, right? Like it's just not that profession anymore. It's developed, it's growing, it's ever changing. And one of the great things that you're helping people do is to see that aspect and help them grow in that aspect. So 
as a last bit of advice, because we do want it and we do want your advice, what would you say to young associates? I know you said to like learn the business side and things like that, but what would you say as a piece of advice as they grow in their career? You know, if they do want to become a business owner, maybe they don't even know what, what should they do? I'm going to share with you a few of the things that I actually share with my own children. So my middle child is currently a first year law student and her older sister is in a different field. The law would would not be interesting to her in the slightest. The first thing I would say specifically for lawyers, young associates is, of course, you have to learn how to be a good lawyer. So all of the things that they're trying to teach you and the feedback that you're getting absorb it, soak it up. Don't take it personally. Feedback is a gift. It doesn't feel like a gift because we all have egos and they can be easily bruised. And we want to think that we're doing a great job. And no doubt you are doing a great job, right? But you're learning a different skill now. You, The skills that you're coming out with are the skills of how to be a great law student. And now you've got to learn a new set of skills, how to be a great associate. And it's okay that you don't know how to be a great associate. If you take things personally and you shoot the messenger, right, you get angry at the people who are giving you the feedback, you're doing yourself a disservice. And so I think that being able to gracefully take feedback and then act upon it is really important. And I did see an example of that with my oldest daughter, um, who was working for a PR firm. And in her first year, she had her review. She had been with them for about six months. She had a review at the end of the year. And they said, hey, you're doing these things really, really well. And then here are a few things you need to work on. I didn't hear about it until months later because she did feel wounded enough that she did not want to share it with anybody. But then apparently what happened was a few months after she got the feedback, somebody who's very senior to her said, we want you to know that we recognize that you've been taking this feedback and you've been actively working on it. And a lot of people don't do that. And so we want to let you know that we see it and we appreciate it. And we think you are doing a better job with this particular thing. And so we just want you to know that we see you. So I think it's very important to take feedback and use it. As I said, it's a gift. If you don't have the information and everybody else has the information, you're the only one who's not being served. The other thing I would say is that whatever kind of business you're working for, right, whether you go in-house or whether you're an associate at a private practice law firm, their goal is profit. And so I think learning how to do things the right way is very important, right? What do they see as the right way to do things and emulating other people? Look for those mentors, look for those sponsors. And it doesn't have to be formal. Right? It could be just somebody that you shoot the breeze with occasionally, and you can ask those questions. And so you, you start to develop people that you can trust um, and are willing to help you succeed. And then from the private practice perspective, I do think that one the number one thing that associates can do to prepare themselves for the future when it comes to the concept of business development is to maintain and nurture the networks that you already have. You've met people in college. You've met people in law school. Perhaps you're involved in volunteer work. Maintain those relationships. Nurture those relationships. Stay in touch with those people. Be as giving to them as possible. Connect them with other people. Are these people going to be able to give business to you right away? Absolutely not. I mean, probably most of you can't give business to each other for, you know, eight to 10 years. When you've maintained those relationships and those people have been in your network actively, for a long time, 
those are the people at some point that are going to be able to give you work or direct work to you or refer work to you, right? So that yo-yo that you've been sitting next to in, you know, in a couple classes in law school who you kind of get a little eye rolly about, but you sort of secretly like, that person is at some point going to be in a position of responsibility and in a position of influence. And so imagine that you've been out of touch with somebody for 20 years and they suddenly become general counsel of a company. And now you think to yourself, wow, I knew this guy back in law school. I can go get business for him. You know, these in-house counsel, they become prey in a sense for private practice lawyers. If you come out of the woodwork 20 years later to suddenly become this guy's best friend, you think he doesn't know what's going on. But if you've been (laughs) friendly with this guy for the last 20 years and he knows you, likes you, trusts you, you're much more likely to be able to have that business relationship with him going forward. And so what happens to a lot of lawyers is that they're working so hard as associates that they completely let their networks go, right? Understandably, they go home from work, they throw themselves on the bed, they watch Netflix, they eat potato chips, whatever it is. They're not out there maintaining those relationships. And so while I don't think you need to be out there every night networking, you know, go to your reunions, go to um, events of, you know, go to bar association events and meet people, um, keep up with, with the alumni, get involved in some kind of not-for-profit that you're passionate about, whatever it may be, maybe pick one thing to do, but make sure that you are nurturing those relationships so that you kind of have that in your back pocket. And you also know how to develop relationships uh, for when the time is right. I think that is some amazing advice, seriously. And so if people want more advice, they can obviously probably go find you. So tell us a little bit about your podcast and where people can, you know, reach out. Absolutely. So the first place to go home base is our website, which is thelawyersedge.com. So it's thelawyersedge.com. I do have a podcast, as you mentioned, also called The Lawyer's Edge. And I started the podcast in the summer of 2020 when, you know, the world had shut down and not much was going on. And we have more than 100 episodes. Uh, And I think that that's, that's a great place to get advice, not from me, but from my amazing guests who are lawyers and legal marketing specialists and business leaders and authors who all have something interesting and valuable to say about life as a lawyer. You can also find me on LinkedIn. And so I'd be (laughs) glad to connect with anybody that wants to connect with me. Great. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. You guys are terrific. I love what you're doing. And thanks so much for taking the time to talk to me. Well, guys, what an episode. I felt like I got some really good advice. I know at the end, I tailored that question a little bit to be about associates, a little bit biased. (laughs) No, (laughs) but I think that she has so much to offer and her story was one that just resonated with me. I was, you know, saying off the record with her about how there's so many women, lady lawyers out there who are in generations above us that quote left the law and it was to raise kids. And like I said, you know, I use a little Bravo term. I don't know if you guys caught that in there, but you know, really you just put it on pause. So, you know, it was still there. It was still ready for you. You were just taking time to live your life and be a mom. 
Yeah, I think her advice was amazing. Uh, you guys should definitely check out her podcast. She has over 100 episodes. So plenty of content to add to your roster because, you know, we love supporting our fellow legal ladies in the podcast world. But yeah, guys, let us know what you thought about this episode. Make sure to go like our post on Instagram. We're going to be sharing some of the points that we thought were great in the episode. Um, and yeah, that's going to be at the Ladies Who Law podcast on Instagram. And as always, guys, if you enjoyed this podcast, please rate and subscribe wherever you listen. The biggest compliment you can give us is to recommend our podcast, this episode specifically, to a friend. We would appreciate it more than you know. All right, guys, stay safe, stay healthy, and we will chat next week. Bye. Bye.